0: This series will shine a light on the shifting dynamics of governmental entities and the ensuing changes in economic or political policies, laws, and regulations that can have a critical impact on the health and future of your business.
1: Hello, and thank you for joining us today. I'm really excited to be here on another Holland and Knight podcast. This is Tate McDonald. As many of you know, I'm a partner here at Holland and Knight and have been a partner at Honda Knight for about eight years now, but have been in this space for a very, very long time talking about the DOE Loan Program Office for a very long time. So I just could not be more thrilled today to have Jigger Shaw here with us, the Executive Director of the DOE Loan Program Office again to talk about very new content of the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and then also my partner, Justin Boos, who has been principal project counsel, to generate since they were founded in 2014. So we're really excited for a productive dialogue, a little bit of a celebration today about the DOE Loan Program Office, but also to just preview all the work there is to come and all the opportunity there is to come, but also the challenges and obstacles that will still remain ahead of us. So before I turn it over to Jigger to talk about the provisions, I'm gonna highlight what's in the Inflation Production Act for the DOE loan program. So number one, first and foremost, $40 billion of authority for Title 17, which includes the renewable energy, fossil energy, nuclear programs. We'll talk a little bit more about how that's going to shape up and how that's changing. But overall, $40 billion of authority is a big deal. Plus, for the first time since 2009, We have a substantial amount of credit subsidy cost which essentially means to folks just starting to learn about the program it means lower interest rates to you so 3.6 billion dollars of credit subsidy cost in title 17 and then in the advanced vehicles program three billion dollars of new authority um, which will essentially equal could equal up to 10 billion dollars of transactions plus expansion to aviation, marine, as well as heavy-duty transportation. And then, really, the news, a lot of people, especially those who have been following these programs, know a lot about Title 17 and ATVM. But now, in addition to additional capacity in those two programs, the Inflation Reduction Act is going to provide us $250 billion of authority under a new... Energy Infrastructure Reinvestment Financing Program, which we'll talk about today as well. So that's something that really hasn't been discussed yet, hasn't been previewed a lot, but really exciting opportunity for utilities and a lot of other infrastructure players in this space that are looking to move to net zero. And then, of course, last but not least, um, the other significant expansion is the Tribal Energy Program, Going from two billion to twenty billion dollars of authority. So, with that, Jigger, why don't we talk a little bit about implementation and what's to come? <laughs> <for programs?
2: laughs> can we just can't we just celebrate the passing
1: of the Inflation <laughs> Reduction
2: Act a little longer?
1: No, no. People have been waiting, Jigger. People have been waiting. <laughs> now it's time to do the work.
2: Well, it's it's great to be here, and thank you for uh, for having me on. I think there's there's definitely a lot of lot of details to talk through.
1: So where should we start? Do you want to start with Title Seventeen, and what uh, that's going to be the easiest to implement?
2: Yeah, already. let's do it. Um, so let's
1: start right there, and then we can go through each program.
2: Well, what I would say is that that I think that the money that goes into the existing programs, whether it's Title 17, the $40 billion of additional loan authority, or whether it's um, the additional credit subsidy for ATVM, which I think our math is, is that the $3 billion should add an additional $40 billion of loan authority. Um, I was
1: being very conservative.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the uh, the Tribal Energy Loan Guarantee Program, which is 20 That's roughly $100 of loan authority, which should be relatively immediately available, right? Because the programs are already in place. They're already, you know, like the rules are already in place. The solicitations are out there. And so we don't expect any delays in those programs um, having access. For Title 17, for sure, there's really no delays there. I think the only thing that we're probably going to have to work through is uh, implementing Uh, the access to critical minerals in Title 17 that was given to us in the bipartisan infrastructure law. So we'll have to figure out exactly how to do that while still maintaining sort of the innovation and greenhouse gas emission provisions that are in there. So there's some conflict there that we'll have to work through.
1: Perfect. And especially with regard to the expansion on ATVM, because that's something that, as we both know, industry has been eyeing and waiting for how long do we expect that to take? And what's your current plan for companies moving into that?
2: Yeah, look, I think that, you know, we're already accepting applications for the additional bill categories, right? Whether it's yep. clean aviation or locomotives or, you know, maritime or, or uh, I mean, I think even the Hyperloop is in there. But you can imagine getting final determinations from uh, general counsel will probably take four or five months. And so we're going through that process now. But I think that timing is well aligned with the timing of uh, the application process anyway. So I don't know that we're holding anybody back. But I do think, you know, on the Title 17 side, we have an RFI that we that we put out, the request for information, which closed August 1st. We got thousands of pages of comments. We'll start another notice of proposed rulemaking probably in October. And hopefully it will get that done later this year and then, you know, published next year. And so that'll take care of all the Title 17 stuff. My sense is that timeline is similar to when we can really get people the nitty gritty details around where the edges are for each of the expanded authorities under Advanced Technology Vehicle Manufacturing Program.
1: Yeah, I really agree with this because and I think this is important to reiterate a little bit on the timelines. Because, especially companies, and we'll talk about this a little bit, Justin will talk about this a little bit later in the dialogue, but overall it takes companies a significant amount of time, no matter how prepared your project is, no matter how ready to market you are to go. I can't tell you how many times we have companies come to us and say, we're ready to go tomorrow, and then we go back and we say... We need these 17 documents then, and we can start to actually move that into an application. And folks say, oh, it'll take me four weeks to get you those 17, (laughs) to get you documents one through five, but I have six through 10 or something. So I think it's really important for companies to start now, even if you do not think you are ready, because no matter how much I've been doing this for 15 years since the first iteration of the program, no matter how ready you think you are, there are going to be multiple things that you have not thought about yet that are really necessary to get into the process. So I think it's really worth reiterating this point. That it's good to start preparing, even though we are going to have rulemakings for some of these, and there there may be some gray, where there always is these days with the with the government and implementation. It's across all of the executive branch agencies. It's not just DOE. It's really important to start because of the time that not only will it take for you guys in implementation, but also to put for the companies to put together the package. I just think we can't stress that enough.
2: Oh, I totally agree. I mean, since I've been in office, I'd say that, you know, I don't think we've ever been the long pole in the tent. I think it's always the company. (laughs) The company makes representations and promises to us that then ends up taking them three months longer to to meet.
1: Exactly. And working together is the only way it works. So before we go on and on about that, why don't we talk real quickly about the utility program expansion? Technically, the energy infrastructure reinvestment financing. Because that's the one that is brand new, folks don't know about. And I think it's a tremendous amount of value that organizations of all types should start looking at right away.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, our initial read of that program is that it, it was really modeled after the 1702 authority. So as a result, we think we can start taking applications for 1706 immediately. And so people, I think, are preparing applications into our office immediately. We do need to still flush out all the rules and things under the rulemaking. And so that'll be completed sometime in January or February. And so that timing, I think, lines up. But we don't think we have to wait for implementation to get 1706 applications flowing into the office because they really use the 1702 template to create the, the, this new authority.
1: Completely agree. And if you're not going to change it, why wait, right? If we're just going to, if it's just going to be implemented the same way as 1702, and it can be from a legal perspective, there's no need to wait, especially when we have the application instruction across the other programs. That's exactly right. But before we leave that too, let's talk a little bit about the types of projects that we think can go under that. Because What's really exciting to me is a conversation we had the other day about net zero applications for hospitals, for universities. There really is a lot of flexibility in that program.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that the nexus of the program is really a definition of energy infrastructure, right? And so I think what's obvious is coal plants, natural gas plants, old pipelines. We're already getting lots of calls from people who have pipelines that just don't have Uh, they're like superfluous and and, uh, there's a new natural gas pipeline that's better than the old one. And so they wanna repurpose the current one. Refineries, there's a bunch that have been announced to be shut down in the next two years. And so a lot of them have contacted us to see if they could repurpose their refinery, but even like nuclear plants like Palisades and others, right? because it doesn't say fossil energy infrastructure, it says energy infrastructure. So taking the Palisades nuclear plant and turning it back on should probably qualify. Under this statute, um, and then the parts that I think are a little less clear, but ones that we're pretty confident will be included, are things like converting all sorts of backup diesel generators at everyone's sites to, you know, battery storage. Let's say, or taking uh, abandoned mine lands and converting that to new, you know, more useful purposes. You know, that is an extension of energy infrastructure. And so we think that this gets very broad very quickly, and it's certainly our intention to get as many comments as we can from stakeholders and to see how broad stakeholders want us to make it. But we we think that this can actually be quite expansive.
1: Yeah. And just to re, just to put a finer point on that, the dialogue is enable, operate. It's, it's retool, repower or replace energy infrastructure that ceased operations or not end, enable operating energy infrastructure to avoid reduced utilizers, sequester air pollutants, uh, or um, GHG emissions. So the bottom line is just that, or, and that second category provide a substantial amount of flexibility for really cool projects um, that I know, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, but just in the market, we know there's projects like net zero ports out there that are just really hard to pull together without a loan guarantee. But I think This is the first time that there's some flexibility in government programs to really deal with these these projects comprehensively. So I know I'm really excited about the opportunity that this brings.
2: I think that's right. And and I also think that the cast of characters here can be quite broad, right? So I think there's a lot of folks who started thinking about this as the electric utility companies using this to do securitization of coal debt uh, and things like that. But I think you're starting to see a lot of interest from independent power producers who have you know, 15, 20-year-old gas plants and are trying to figure out the next move for a lot of those plants. Um, you also see a lot of renewable energy companies aggressively going out and buying, operating coal and natural gas plants to get the interconnection point for those facilities and then filing to restate the use of that interconnection to do solar plus storage or something like that. So I think that qualifies... And so there's a lot of different types of people who could be applicants, you know, under this program, not just electric utilities.
1: And I just couldn't agree more. And that's one of the main points I really wanted to convey in this dialogue today, because the I think developers and the industry is so used to thinking LPO does one thing, but what's so important about this legislation is it really does open up the loan program to operate like the Green Bank that we were always hoping that it could, um, just under an, under a whole new category that, yes, has some parameters, but it's not overly prescriptive by any stretch of the imagination. So another thing that I really wanted to touch on today, um, and Justin, going to turn it over to you to jump in finally, but... One of the things that Jigger, you and I talk about, about a lot is companies being ready to take on debt and projects being ready to integrate debt when they come to the loan program. I think over the past year, of dozens of applicants, many whom we've told, hey, you're not quite ready yet, come back in a little bit, um, even though we're trying to get as many in as possible. What we're I know what we consistently see is companies that just haven't even started the dialogues about about bringing on debt. So, Justin, could you talk a little bit about, especially given your Generate role in supporting Jigger and the transactions that Generate was able to do over the past eight years or so, could you talk a little bit about what it takes for and what companies should be really thinking about from bringing on debt and starting to approach these programs?
3: Sure, sure, Tate. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. So, so my practice really is, you know, on the development and finance side, you know, not so much on the policy side. And and in this role, I see developers of a very diverse array of technologies and a very broad range of sophistication. So, I I sort of look at this whole program a little bit as as a boomerang, right? Like clients come to me sort of trying to learn more about the pro- the program and the financing opportunities available. And I'm able to refer them to Tate and our team in DC to, to kind of work through, you know, whether, whether it makes sense for them to move forward. And then at that point, my job is really to kind of help put them in a position to succeed. So for me, you know, the application process is really akin to a job application process, right? The three most important things are you know your preparedness your credibility and and doing your homework so it's it's everything from you know articulating a distinct purpose for the use of funds you know preparing a, an appropriately sophisticated financial model to support the ability of the project to repay the loan
1: exactly i think that's reading what we see all the time is making sure companies have the model appropriately prepared making co- Sure, contracts are moving to financeable. I mean, I know we're not always getting there in our space, but at least at least moving the needle. I mean, our constant dialogue is we have to move the needle as far as we can to make sure that we can get to the reasonable prospect of repayment for the loan program.
3: Right. And, and it's really a credibility component. I, I see developers all the time, each and Equal place of maturity, but but one vastly more financeable and credible to the marketplace than the other, and it comes down to your documentation having the right look and feel, having sophisticated transaction counsel who knows what financing markets generally and the LPO program specifically are going to look for. It's having a data room, having all of your you know your inputs and outputs covered, you know under binding articulable, enforceable agreements. And uh, I think, you know, I think that's where a lot of folks with great technology who maybe have a strong engineering background and not a strong finance background are are being held back and and really need to just tap into the right advisors and start early on with the, the best practices of, you know, documenting and papering Transactional assets, financial modeling, and and everything else that's going to be looked at once they come out of the uh, the application process.
2: Well, I mean, but I'd say with respect, Justin, I think one of the biggest challenges that we have, as you know, is is when you take the world's top developers, who you guys clearly work with, they're not making decisions based on the availability of loan programs, office debt, right? And so they are playing it safe and only doing deals that they think they can get commercial debt for, which they're also underperforming on their return equity for. And so part of what we need to do at the Loan Programs Office is be trusted enough by those developers that they will actually do things that deliver much higher equity returns for them, but are dependent upon us being around and available to them to be able to realize those
1: returns so funny. I actually had that conversation this morning about how the best thing about the IRA is it shows that the loan program will be there. Of course, there's a lot of work ahead of us. We've talked a little bit about that already. There's a lot of work ahead of us to make sure it stays consistent and available To in that perspective. But it really does open up a whole new opportunity for the market now that the foundation is laid and the loan program is what it's always, it's becoming what it was always intended to be. I think it's really important for those developers to continue to start to trust in the loan program, go through the process, because if you don't start the process, you can't get the loan.
2: No, I get it. But I mean, but they're not there yet. Like I talked to one of the top developers in the country this morning and, you know, they were like, well, but Jigger, are you sure that the NEPA process is going to take one year and not three years? Are you sure that this Buy America provision is not going to apply to the Loan Programs Office? Are you sure that this is going to happen and that is going to happen? I mean, they are genuinely nervous about using our program. And, and as a result, there are projects that they're looking to just not do because the numbers don't pencil unless our program is there, right? They're not going to hundred percent equity finance something at you know eight percent or seven percent returns. And so, I mean, I, I do think that the
1: importance of you coming in, the industry all working together, the communication to Congress on the importance of the program. Clearly, Congress is understanding it, but we all just have to continue as an industry as well, right?
2: Yeah, but I think we got to press the flesh. I mean, I don't know what you think, Justin, but like I feel like. I feel like we can't take it for granted. Like I think the IRA is awesome and it, it, it's the right signal at the right time. But there's a lot of people I talk to who are still just plain lazy and they're not getting into advanced geothermal. They're not getting into low impact hydro. They're not extending their development chops into some of these other sectors. They're just doing the same old sort of solar and wind projects that are oversubscribed. They're waiting three years in interconnection queues they're not reaching for the next innovative thing.
3: No, I 100% agree. They're, they're they're taking the safe bet, which is why I think that the outreach that you're doing on behalf of the program office to really articulate the broader goals of the program and the broader reach of the technologies and project types that that should be eligible, you know, is 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 doing what it needs to sort of signal to the market to to bring, you know, to dig deep, to to go further, you know, to be more aggressive in in goals and in you know kind of exploitation of technology and and really just kind of moving the industry where it is continues to go and, and needs to continue to go to sort of get to net zero and to bring in and harness every possible available resource and, you know, kind of resource repurposing that, that we can. And, and I do think that the recent legislation and the sort of a, the demonstration of the, the stability of the program and the likelihood of the funds being there is, is, is also a, a big piece of it. And I think that that story you know, is being told well and that the, the momentum in Congress and everything else going on in the industry you know, backing it uh,
1: supports that story. I'm hearing you guys say this instead of me for once.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the the other challenge, honestly, is that there's just a lot of, there are a lot of private sector folks who have allowed themselves to sort of get jaded. And, you know, you hear it all the time. They're just like, we're not going to get into a sector that depends on the government. And at this point, all 25 sectors depend on the government. That's how this works. Like we're in the era of the industrial strategy.
1: How it's been for it it's where we are gonna end up, regardless. Let's put it that way. It's something I've always thought about. It's why i'm I'm at home tonight with the platform we have because it's where we are going to end up in this sector.
2: yeah, but we gotta we gotta get folks from the top telling their teams that it's okay to show weakness, right? The only way for this to work is for growth companies and institutional infrastructure investors to tell the government here are the three risks we're just absolutely not gonna take. The government has to take those risks or figure out how to de-risk it for us. And right now, I would say across the 25 sectors that we're, we're accepting applications for, it takes us seven rounds of conversations with these applicants to get them to come clean on what that risk sharing needs to be. We're not having very good conversations across the industry for these sectors that are not yet mature, whether it's carbon capture and sequestration, whether it's hydrogen, you know, whether it's CO2 pipelines through the CIFIA loan program that we're administering. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of people out there that I think are just, you know, showing false bravado. And internally their investment committees have not approved final, you know, notice to proceed on these deals. And unless they come clean with what they're really concerned about, a lot of these projects are going to end up, you know, like uh, failing to launch.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's it's not knowing how to communicate with the government in a way that helps both sides, that is applicable for both sides, which I think is, it's why we're at such an inflection, and it was such an amazing inflection point because we do, and this is where I will put in a plug for us because this is what we do, this is what we know how to do. I spend just as much time talking to boards as you probably do at this point, Jagger, and getting boards comfortable with everything and moving projects through, but then also speaking to the government in a way that translates the needs of the industry to the government to move the projects through. Because you know, we have to have those, those conversations are occurring all the time in negotiations. But the bottom line, and I know we're we're a little late on time and I wanna get to our final question, but the bottom line is like, that's what we are here for. And that's what we all have to continue to do together. And I think this is an open invite. We do these things to show it's an, there's an open invite for folks to come to you and continue to pose these problems and find counsel to help you get through them.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, having a strong ecosystem for our program is super important because a lot of these folks aren't going to want to bring this expertise in-house. They're going to want to hire someone to help them get through this process.
1: Well, and I always like, we all know I'm going to be here because I've been here before. It was cool again. So, um, but the bottom line is we just have to keep on moving and we're not going to give up on it. But on that point, and I've got, I pulled all my holiday night colleagues along throughout the years. On that point, in closing, what are you guys most excited about? I know I was thinking about this this morning. I'm just really excited finally to get some of the deals we have through the pipeline that are kind of closer to us, like American solar manufacturing back again, the SAF uh, projects finally done that have been sitting out there for a decade, and, and the types of hydro, the first few big hydrogen projects. But what are you guys most excited about?
2: Yeah, look, I think we spent the better part of the first 16 months really building the foundation of the office and making sure that our policies and procedures were tight. And that all of our ecosystem partners within the government actually could handle the volume that was coming in, right I mean, when you first start talking to you know the office of the CFO and OMB and Treasury, et cetera, I mean even you know thinking about doing three deals a month was was not something that people were staffed for, right And so I think mm-hmm. you know getting into that rhythm is something the government takes some time to get to, and I think we spent the time to get everyone there in a way that was comfortable and I think is durable so that private sector folks can depend on the fact that we are not just, you know, doing this with duct tape and bailing wire, but we actually help to build a lot of that capacity back into the government to process these loans. I think the next piece of it is to figure out how we get LPO to be dependable. I mean, I think as we know, you know, part of that is making sure that you guys have a good ability to handicap projects coming in, right? And that there is, there are no surprises, right? Like surprises causes everyone problems. And we've got to get to the point where there are no surprises and we're not there yet. Let's be honest. And so we've got to figure out a way to communicate better with you about where the lines are for the loan programs office and making sure that you know we're not jerking people around by giving them false hope that you know their project's going to qualify for the office and then you know the last thing for me is making sure that people are making a round and b round investments into companies that depend on the loan programs office being there for them to cross the valley of death on the other side right like today many of those companies are not getting a and b round investment because people don't think there's an ability to get debt for their first of a kind project or their second of a kind project. And I think given the track record that we've had this year and the one that we're gonna be building throughout the end of the year and then into next year, I do think we're increasingly finding ourselves listed in reports from the Prime Coalition and ITIF and other organizations that are saying, oh, you know, as part of the innovation cycle, the loan programs office fits here. And that is allowing corporate investors to feel more confident to invest in deep tech and hard tech, which is what we need to be able to decarbonize um, our country by you know, 2050 and our electricity grid by 2035. So that's that's where I'm headed, because I, I think that we've got most of the technologies we need to reach those goals. But the government has to be really firmly in control of figuring out how to work with the private sector on accomplishing these industrial strategy goals in an absolute fashion.
1: Couldn't agree more. Justin?
3: Uh, yeah, and I guess for me, get kind of given where I sit, you know, at the intersection of, you know, kind of the evolution of different technologies across the, the clean tech sector and the private sector backing them is just, you know, kind of helping folks understand how their technology or project, you know, may fit in with the program mandate, what they need to do to get it there. And, and again, to Jigger's point, shifting the mindset from, you know, kind of telling a narrative where everything, you know, is rosy, you know, as the boat's about to go over the, to the rocks, understanding that the DOE is looking at this differently. is not an entirely for-profit driven program, but it's really a program to encourage development of these projects and technologies, and and therefore, to your point, Jigar, going in with the problems that need to be solved, you know, rather than answers that may not ring true, you know, really being the pathway to, to success and getting through uh, commitment and funding.
2: Totally agree.
1: Yeah, and in closing, I'll just say, because we've spent so much time talking about this is a celebratory discussion, but... We had to spend time talking about what it's going to take to make it sustainable and continue throughout the next decade and beyond. And the one thing I will say for companies out there, just in closing, a little goes a long way with congressional representatives. We really we rebuilt this program piecemeal with the voices of many. I mean, I know our letter for the $30 billion authority expansion, we ended up getting 40 our letter was $30 billion and $2.6 billion of credit subsidy costs, but we have 30, 40 clients on that letter. And it's by doing that and signing on to those letters that we were really able to turn this ship with a lot of the NGOs too. So just in closing for companies, a little really does go a long way. Anything else in closing? But thanks, guys. This was a great conversation. and I'm just so excited to continue them because there's just so much opportunity ahead of us.
2: No, thanks for having me on. And I hope that People are hearing loud and clear that, that we want people's feedback. And so, you know, whether you've had good experiences or bad experiences with the office, if you think your technology should have qualified but didn't, you know, in previous iterations, like, let us know so that as we write these new rules, we can make sure we do it in a way that accommodates all these uh, comments and feedback.
1: Can't stress that enough because the program really is listening and working with us. On all the transactions we have, and we've definitely been able to do things that a few years ago we wouldn't be able to do just by um, making sure that everything's defined right. So, Justin, anything else in closing?
3: No, I think we've covered it all. I think you know, Tate. You know, we're available on you know both the, the program application side and, and the financing side to kind of help folks who need to figure out how to approach and interface with with the program, and just kind of encourage folks to reach out.
1: Thank you, guys. Thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank you for listening to the Eyes on Washington podcast brought to you by Holland and Knight's Public Policy and Regulation Group. For more information on our Public Policy and Regulation Group, please visit hklaw.com slash ppr.